righty. All right, thank you. Okay, let me get back up to the top of my notes. This is strange doing it twice. If you're here the first time and you heard any of the mistakes I made, well, I'm excited you're here the second time to hear me make an entirely different set of mistakes while I'm speaking. So that's going to be fun. But before we get started, I didn't do this in the first sermon. I meant to, but I forgot about it. So we're going to do it now. Uh, This has nothing to do with what I'm going to be talking about today, but at the same time, it has everything that I want everything to do with what I'm going to be talking about today. So if you all would just take a second, and this is something I like to do when I'm doing my devotion time, I find it a very helpful practice, is take a second and think about God. Think about God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Think about who they are. Think about the fact that Christ took on flesh, condescended, he came here to earth to suffer and die. He walked the earth. Just as real as you are here right now, just as real as the founding fathers you learn about in school, the God of the universe was present on the world that you are currently living in. And he did that for you. And then he proceeded to die for you. And I do that in my devotion time because it adds a certain level of gravity and... um, seriousness to the things that I'm studying and reading, even if it's just a brief devotion, to remember that this isn't just theoretical, this isn't like studying a superhero, this is studying historical figures who interacted with the world and who made a change in the world that we live in today. So I would encourage you, again, nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about and everything to do with what I'm going to talk about. I would encourage you to continue that practice in your own lives. But with that out of the way, I guess I should talk about a little bit about who I am. So I am Austin Owen. Uh, my family goes to church here. He mentioned Daddy and Shauna. And then Granny's back there. You all know her as Granny. And Aunt Keena's in Mexico right now. And Hector, I saw him around here somewhere. I don't see him right now. But. And then Rebecca is down there as well. So you guys know my family, most of you. Most of you know me as well. Those of you who don't are probably newer guests or newer members. I have been gone the last two years. I transferred up to Bible college, and I've only been here during breaks. Now, I'm here whenever I get the chance. It just so happens that that's a very limited amount of time. This year in particular, I've been here less because I had to do an internship. I've been working at a church in Boonville, a church called Martin Hill. Great church, great people. But I must confess that I am excited to be back here, be back in my home church, connect with my home church family, because that's what this is. This is my home, and it always will be. And so I am overjoyed to have this chance. It's actually been a dream of mine, kind of, being a little pastor nerd here. It's been a dream of mine to speak at Connect since I was like 15 years old. Before I had declared my major, before I felt called to ministry, this has been a goal of mine, and it's awesome to see that get to happen Uh, And it's crazy the things that God will do for us when we remain faithful to him. So I'm grateful for this opportunity. Though I will admit I am very nervous. Uh, I talked to several of you about it through texts and calls and uh, in person about the fact you would, people love to ask, are you nervous to speak? And the answer is, yes, of course I'm nervous to speak. Because at churches like Kofers, where I go when I'm at school up in Tennessee, I speak there. But if they don't like what I have to say, what are they going to do? You know, I'm, I'm a... I'm a student that goes to their church while I'm at school. What are they going to do, kick me out of the church? No, right? At Martin Hill, I was only there for 10 weeks. If they don't like what I have to say, what are they going to do? I'm only there for 10 weeks. I'm an intern, you know? I guess they could give me a bad review to the college, but, you know. But here, 
If you guys don't like what I have to say, it's more of a question of what am I going to do? So the stakes are a lot higher. I've known you guys my whole life. And so that is a certain level of nerves. But even more than that, what had me nervous to speak this morning is the fact that I had no idea what I was going to be talking about this morning. I have a sermon, but I just, it took me a long time to figure it out. So I had about a month to prepare for this, and during that month, I was kind of gathering information, thinking about writing a sermon on soul winning. I wanted to write about that. And I was to say, I wanted to write about that. And I got my, some information together, and I had a few good examples I was going to use, and I wanted to talk about, you know, how we need to be nicer to people, how we need to be careful the things that we're just throwing around on social media, being all accusatory and judgmental, all kinds of great stuff. But when it came time to sit down and actually write it, I'm sitting at my computer, and I'm sitting there for hours trying to figure this out. I couldn't even get an introduction together. Could not even get an introduction. And that's usually the easiest part for me, because all you got to do is what I'm doing right now. You just got to tell the story, generally. That's how most of them go, if you notice. But I couldn't even do that. And a big part of it was the fact that I was writing what I thought I wanted to speak on. And when I realized this, I prayed to God, and I said, God, I realize that I have been in error. I realize that I am leaving you out of this process, and I shouldn't do that, so I'm going to drop this sermon, and I'm going to wait for you to tell me what you want me to talk about. But I need you to do it quick, because i got to preach this Sunday, and it's the middle of the week. So... It was rough. It was rough. We were at Feed the Teachers, and the teachers would come through, and I would make them plates, and I would give them food, and I would talk to the other volunteers, and I was like, oh, yeah. But in the back of my head the whole time, I was like, what am I going to talk about? What am I going to talk about? What am I going to talk about? i got to have something. And when you're talking to people, and you're trying to find a topic for a sermon, everything's going to sound like a topic for a sermon. So you give a teacher a plate, and she'll say, thank you for this very much. And I say, have a nice day. And I'll be like, well, I could probably talk about that. But that's not, you know, really a very good sermon topic at all. Then thankfully, Wednesday night came around, and I came to church, and Brother Terry was talking on justification. I don't know why I'm looking at the screen like it's up there, because it's not. He was talking about justification. He was talking about our justification by faith, not through works. It was good stuff. It was great stuff, and I loved it. And I was like, oh, see, now there's an actual topic I could talk about right there, something I could actually expand upon. But I still, I was hesitant to just give it all of my attention, because I was like, well, what if this isn't the right thing either? And so then, just to cement to me that that was what I needed to speak about, God, it's funny how it works out, he had my little brother Cameron, uh, I guess under some form of something, and Cameron texted me Thursday night. He said, Bubby, which is what he calls me, he says, I've been reading about God. I was like, yes, fantastic, right? You love to see your family members take an interest in their eternity. There's no better feeling than seeing the people you care about come to realize how important their eternity is. Then I read the rest of his message, and I was like, oh no, because he was like, this guy is saying some stuff, and I didn't quite understand what he was saying, so I called him, and it turns out the gentleman who he had been reading from was preaching a salvation based on works. He was preaching that you don't pray for forgiveness of your sins, you don't ask for forgiveness of your sins, rather, you live a good enough life, and in turn, you make it into heaven. And I was like, oh, no, don't read that. And so <laughs> I talked to him on the phone for a bit. And quite honestly, I talked to him a little bit too long because once my cog got going in my brain, I was really excited. And, and I just kind of started saying things that I was thinking about. But eventually I reined it back in. 
and I answered some of his questions, and I was surprised at what surprised him in the conversation, because he's grown up in church, and so some of the things that I said, I was surprised that he said, you know, Bubby, I've never heard it said like this, and I was like, okay, well, that's not good, so I set about to write a sermon on that, and I prayed, God, give me the words, give me the message that you would like me to give to the church, and he did, and now I'm here, and that's fantastic. And our passage for today is going to be out of Ephesians. It's going to be chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And my computer is trying to turn off, so give me just a second. I'm not very good with technology. Nailed it. Fantastic. Okay. So what we're going to do is, we're, I'm just going to read through the passage real quick, and then we'll start back over at the top and work our way down. I'll meet you guys there. Ephesians chapter 2 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. The passions of our flesh lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body but the mind, uh, and the mind. And we were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, when, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Oof. Okay, made it. I have to close my Bible. I hate to do that when I preach, but those vents right there will have my pages on, like, over in Revelation or something. Okay, fantastic. So, if you're like me, that was a lot of words. And I have a tendency, when I read a lot of words, to get a little bit of what I call, I call it, and this is a trademark term, fuzzy-brained. I get fuzzy-brained. My brain goes all and I don't really understand what I'm reading by the end of it. And so I have to be very intentional in my study. I have to pull out the commentaries. I have to look at the other scripture references that are attached in the study Bibles. That's what I have to do to understand some passage, especially ones like this, where even though I'm using the ESV, which is kind of like a cheat sheet, I still struggle with some of the back and forth language that's being used there. Now, I have friends who they can like read an entire book of the Bible and pause for 30 seconds and be like, I got that right? But I'm not there. And, you know, hopefully some of you are right there alongside me in that. And so my goal today is to take this passage, which is a very important, fundamental, foundational passage to us as Christians. And I just want to make it simple. I want to make it easy. So if at any point I say something that is confusing or maybe not worded well, or maybe just something you disagree with, I'll even take that. Obviously, don't say it right now. You don't have to mention it right now. But you can come up to me afterwards, and I'd be happy to talk about it because this is something that we all need to grasp. This is one of the cores of our faith and our hope. So, 
Pro tip, if you're ever going to be a pastor, if you're ever going to speak, it is important to start with the first verse you read. So we're going to start in verse 1. Get back to it. Fantastic. Okay, chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I cheated, and I went a little bit into verse 2, but maybe it won't blow it. We'll see. Uh, I went a little bit into verse 2, but nevertheless, that's where we're going to start. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Which brings us to point one, which is that salvation gives us life. Salvation gives us life. That's really pretty. I didn't really pay enough attention to what it looked like the first service. Anyway, salvation gives us life. He's talking, Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus. He's saying that you were dead, spiritually dead, of course, not physically dead. And the idea that they were dead implies that they are now alive. Now, in one of the commentaries I read to help my fuzzy brain, uh, there was a gentleman whose name is currently escaping me who talked about the idea of spiritual death, and he talked about it by comparing it to physical death. He said that when someone is physically dead, they have no concerns for the physical world. When someone is physically dead, they do not respond to physical stimuli. Both of those things, you know, with a grain of salt. In the same way, though, for this example, when someone is spiritually dead, they do not respond appropriately to spiritual stimuli because they have no appropriate concern for the spiritual world, for spiritual reality, and for their own spiritual life. They are spiritually dead. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. And what does it look like when we're dead in our trespasses and sins? Well, you know, we don't have to guess. It tells us. It tells us that we are guilty of following the course of the world. So we follow the world. It says, The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, so the devil, and then, if I can find it, there it is, the passions of our flesh. So those are the three things that it lists here. We have the devil, we have the world, and we have our own flesh. Those are the things that we are following in place of our almighty creator. And what are we doing? What well, says we're living in disobedience. So we take that same God that I had you guys think about at the beginning of the sermon, the same God who sent his one and only son to die for us, who created us out of love, knowing before he even created us that he would eventually have to experience the worst thing he had ever experienced in all of eternity on our behalf. And we're living in disobedience to him. We are spiritually dead. But there's good news. Because if you listen, or if you, I guess, read, what he's saying there, you see that he's saying you were spiritually dead. Again, that implies that they are now spiritually alive, and as we'll see in the rest of the passage, that is in Christ. God came to them and gave them spiritual life. Now, I recently went to the uh, National Association for Free Will Baptists, which is, you know, what we are. And so there, by the way, quick commercial break for the National Association. It was so much fun, right? Like, if you want to go and be a big old nerd and listen to some seminars and some fantastic preachers and also watch, like, the youth competitions where they do sword drills and stuff, it's a great time. 
It really is. I would highly encourage you to go check it out if you're interested in that kind of thing. But regardless, I was there, and my favorite part was the preaching. And there was a man who, when he was preaching, his, again, names are not coming to me right now, but he was talking about the woman at the well. A story I think we're all familiar with. A woman at the well who she'd been divorced. She was living with a man who wasn't her husband as though he was. She was living a life of sin. And Jesus came to her and he was speaking to her. And it was a big deal that he was even talking to her. Just because he was a Jew, let alone because he was the Messiah. And the man talked about how maybe sometimes we're too critical of the woman. And I fell under a conviction there. He talked about how she lived in a society where women couldn't even file for divorce. So we don't know why she was divorced. We just know that she was divorced five times. It could be that she did something. In some of the cases, maybe she did. But in other cases, it wasn't uncommon for people to get annoyed or tired with their wife, kick her out of the house with nothing but the clothes on her back, and now she has nowhere to go. So what does she do? She gets remarried, right? It's also a culture, the one that she lived in, was a culture that abused women. It was a bad thing to be a woman in the time that she lived. And so we don't know her story. We don't know if she was bought and sold into slavery, if she was abused physically or sexually. We don't know what happened to her when she was 6, when she was 12, when she was 18, when she was 22. All we know is that she's at the well, and yet for some reason we all want to jump on the bandwagon of how horrible and awful this woman is. And I'm guilty of doing that too when I've heard that story. But see, what struck me when he was speaking was why I did that. It's because I always identified as the Christ figure in that story. You know, it's like I go to the people of the world and I bring to them the good news and I say, all of you are sinners and you need to repent. And that is true. That is true. She was living in sin. I'm not trying to make light of the sin that she was living in. But the reality is, is that while Christ and God, he can enable us to be that person. He can enable us to take his message to the world to take his message to those who are living in sin and to say, you are living in sin and need to correct it. We as humans, our nature, we are the woman in that story. We are the woman who is living in sin, the woman who does not seem to be phased by the fact she's living in sin until she's called on it and is given this spiritual awakening. We are the people who God had to come to us at the well that we were at where he found us and show us the way. He had to wake us up and offer us this spiritual, this living water, and we had to choose to drink it. And when we did, we came to life. Our salvation gives us life. And now, I don't know about you, but I think that that is an amazing act of grace, that he comes to us in our disobedience. Sometimes I like to think, you know, Christ died for Austinoan as he is right now. And that's true. He died so that Austinoan can be as he is right now, which is a saved, regenerate believer. But he died for the Austinoan that was living in sin and didn't care. He died for the Austinoan. He died for all of us. He died for the version of us before we knew him so that we could know him. And that is an amazing act of grace, which brings to point two. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is by grace. Again, nothing groundbreaking here. Nothing groundbreaking. Now, I know I kind of didn't read verse by verse, but I went through verse by verse there. So uh, if you're keeping up, we'll be at verse 4 now. So if we want to get there. 
it says, but God, and we'll stop for a second. See, there it goes again. But God. And I want to stop there because that's such an important part of the passage. That, those two words sum up. Whew. Those two words sum up our hope. Those two words sum up our faith, really. You know, we were lost, but God, right? We were spiritually dead, but God. We were sons and daughters of disobedience, living lives deserving only of eternity in hell, but God. God came to us, revealed himself to us when we certainly, certainly did not deserve it. And here's an extra little piece. He didn't just do it for those of us who believe in him. He even did it for the people who he knew would never believe in him. He did it for the people who he knew were never going to come to faith in him. He still loved them so much that it was more important to him that they have the opportunity to choose him, even though he knew they weren't going to do it, just so he can say that he did everything he possibly could for them. And why did he do it? He did it so that we could be raised up and seated with him and be with him for eternity. That's what verse 6 says. Let me read it. Verse 6, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Raised us up and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us, in Christ Jesus. That's a big deal. So to better understand that, let me ask you guys this. This is an old question that I'm sure some of you know the answer to. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? The answer to that question is to glorify God. That is the purpose for which we were created. If you were ever at a church, in a classroom, in an auditorium, and someone asked that question, and the person who is in the position of authority says anything other than to glorify God, then, oh, I would be nervous. Because that's what the Bible says. And I don't know about you guys, but that's where I like to take my cues from. Chief end of man is to glorify God. And God is restoring us to that through his grace. He is giving us the opportunity to fulfill the purpose for which we were created. And now there are some people who say, well, that's kind of self-serving, don't you think? You know, that, that you were made to glorify him and now he's helping you out because he wants you to do what you were meant to do and what you were meant to do was glorify him. And from a worldly perspective, I can see why they would think that, but quite frankly, I'm inclined to disagree and disagree emphatically. Big, like, no, absolutely not. Because God could have just destroyed us and started over. There's passage where he almost did it, right? Because that's what we deserved. We deserved destruction. We deserved damnation. But instead, it wasn't self-serving. It was self-sacrificing. He sacrificed himself for us so that we could fulfill our purpose. Have you ever had like a job or a goal that you wanted to accomplish, 
that you couldn't or that you couldn't do to the extent that you wanted to because you didn't have the proper tools on hand. I remember spring break, I think it was spring break last year, maybe it was year before last, either way, it was a spring break, and I live in the woods, and so our driveway was getting overgrown, and I was tired of the branches and stuff scraping on my car, so I decided I was going to clear out the underbrush by the side of our driveway, right? It was a great idea, just a fantastic idea to do that in the heat, but and you're about to see my tool knowledge here. I didn't have one of those cool weed eater things with the metal blade. I just call them metal weed eaters. I don't know what they're actually called. <laughs> but I didn't have one of those, right? I went down to my granny's shop because my granny is my neighbor and she also lives in the woods. And I got a machete, a dull machete with a wiggly handle that I had to wear gloves on because the plastic of the handle would cut my hand if I didn't have the gloves on. And I got a dull axe that I don't think has cut anything ever. And I went out there, and every day for my spring break, for about two to three hours, because that's all I could take in the heat, I, I would die, I would die. But as long as I could, I went out there and I worked, and I worked, and I worked. And as I was doing it, even as I was doing it, don't get me wrong, I was happy it was being done, but I was still dissatisfied with it because I knew it could be done better if I had the proper tools. I just didn't have hundreds of dollars to go buy a metal weed eater. No. So, as I was doing it, I was dissatisfied, and when I finished, I looked back, and I was like, yeah, it's all right. You know, it's what I set out to do, kind of. Well, that's us right now. We have a goal. Our goal is to glorify God. That is your purpose in your life, whether you realize it or not. Many people don't realize it because they're still spiritually dead. But every single person who has ever been born since the time of the fall has been born with a God-sized hole in their heart, which I know is a cliche phrase, that only he can fill. And only living your life as we were meant to can you feel the contentment and joy that we were meant to feel. feel. And so if that is our goal and our fallen human nature is our tools, then we don't have the right tools for the job. We can't experience the joy and the peace and the contentment and the love and the fulfillment that we were meant to have because we don't have the right tools. So what did God do? He died for us. That is God's grace. That is God's grace. But then there's one more step. And this is a three-point sermon because I'm a pastoral major. And unless you're Brother Terry and you're a pastor, you do three-point sermons. His are usually about 45, but we're going to rock with three this morning. I hope that's okay. Point three. Salvation is through faith. Salvation is through faith. And so what this amounts to is it amounts to God's grace enables us to have faith in him. But we need to understand that faith. Let's look at verse 8. I promise not to stop after two words this time. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Again, I cheated, and I went a little bit into the next verse. Not your own doing, not of works. It is a gift of God. I wish that the man who wrote the article that Cameron was reading could be here this morning and hear that. 
Not because I want to like rub his nose in the Bible and say, ha ha, you know, my understanding of scripture is right and I'm mad at you for what you were letting my little brother read. But I want, I wish he could be here because if he's living a life dependent on works, if he is living a life where he is putting his faith in himself to reach eternity with God, then he's not going to make it. Because you can't. It's not works. It's the free gift of God. And part of accepting it is understanding it. Part of accepting it is understanding it. Let's look at verse 9 now. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's go back to this. What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God. Thank you, class. Yes, it is to glorify God. I hope you guys take that away, because I've said it about a hundred times, I feel like. So that means there are actually two issues with faith by works. Two issues aside from the fact that the Bible just said that that's not correct. There are two ways that we can tell that it's just not what it's meant to be. The first one, the first issue with salvation through works is simple. It's that you can't do it. You cannot achieve salvation through doing good enough because every single action you do is touched by your sin-cursed nature. Everything you do is touched by that. You will not live a perfect life. I encourage you to try and live perfectly because we are called to be perfect. But the reality is, is that you can't. The second issue with faith by works is found in the second half of verse 9. It says, so that no one may boast. If the chief end of man is to glorify God according to Scripture, then another issue with salvation by works is the fact that it glorifies ourselves. We say, God, look at how good I've done. God, don't I deserve to be with you for all of eternity? Look at all these awesome things that I have accomplished. And the answer is, if that's what you're depending on, then no. No, you don't get to be with God for all of eternity. It requires faith in the Son, in the death, the burial, the resurrection, the deity of Christ. It requires faith and acceptance of that. But with verse 10, there is one more point that I would like to make. It's not a separate point. It's still only three points, but it's another point about works. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, a bit of a church history lesson. Since the time of Christ, and if we're being honest, since before the time of Christ, all the way back in Jewish history, there has been a several centuries-long debate about faith in works in salvation. Because it's always been faith, but there have always, even in Jewish tradition, again, and in early Christian, been people who said works. And then there was a man who we are all familiar with to one extent or another. His name was Martin Luther, and he kind of kicked off the Reformation. You know, he, he did his thing. He wasn't the only guy, but he was there, and he was a big part of it. And the reason he did it was because he took issue with the Catholic Church. He thought that they were too works-driven. 
They were too dependent on works for their salvation. And he was right. But there was another part of that. He was overly critical sometimes, if we're being honest, of Catholicism. And as a result, our tradition, the Baptist tradition, which stems from his work, sometimes does not put enough emphasis on our works. We say that they don't matter at all. Now, we have some legalistic churches that say that works are the only thing that matters, and they've kind of regressed in that way. But then we have some churches that say it doesn't matter what you're doing because, you know, you're saved, right? You're, you know, your works don't matter at all. And we don't want to go that direction because the Bible is clear. We were created in Christ for good works that God had already prepared. Our works matter. You know, you know a tree based off the fruit that it bears. If you have the Spirit, you will bear the fruits of the Spirit in your actions. A, work, a faith without works is dead. This is biblical. Just look at the entire book of James. So we must not, must not divorce works from this conversation. Now, if you say, I am saved and it had nothing to do with my works. You're good, because you're right. You didn't earn it. Right? The only thing that your works did is part, is part of your salvation, is make you need it. But if you say, I am saved, and my works no longer matter, then you have begun down the wrong path. We were recreated. We were spiritually awoken and made, we were spiritually resurrected so that we could accomplish these good works in the name of Christ to bring glory to him, as that is our chief end. Now, we're moving on, and I'm being very open about, like, my points and stuff in the sermon. I'm trying to be, because, again, I want it to be simple. We're moving on to the part of the sermon that I probably struggle with the most, just in always, you know, I said introduction's probably my best part. The part I probably struggle with the most is going to be my application, but I think there is strong application from this text. Strong application that I think we need to understand. And so I have three sermon points, I have three application points. The first application point is that you were once dead. I didn't give it to them to put up there, so sorry, they don't have it but that you were once dead. That means two things. The first one, it means that maybe we should be a little bit more sympathetic to the people that still are dead. We were them. They are at the well. We were at the well. You know, you say, oh, well, I never did the thing they were doing. Trust me, you were just as guilty before an almighty, holy God as they are in their current state. So maybe pull back on the harsh word. Pull back on the harsh language. Definitely on the harsh language. What are we doing? Right? Be kind to people. Don't show your wrath. Show God's grace. And the second one, the second point, should I have said it's full? It doesn't matter. Anyway, the second part of the first point, there we go, is that you were dead, right? So you have to stop living like you're still dead. You know, we're no longer at the well. We can't continue as though we were. 
You know, I was in this relationship. I had this addiction. I had this temptation. I have this past. Emphasis on the word past. God has forgiven you for those things. He has recreated you for good works. Go and do them. Stop living like you're still dead. Second application. You are not being judged for your sins. You are being judged based off the life of Christ. Now, this is what I said to Cameron that kind of blew his mind. I don't know how y'all envision it, but I think this is kind of a good example of how I envision it, like a theater-style setting where all of humanity is sitting in these chairs and every sin that we've ever committed is up on these big screens for everyone to see in judgment. Uh, That's just kind of how I always imagined it. I assume it's not going to be like that. Usually my approach to things like that is to understand I'll be wrong. Um, But it's a good mental image. And so everything that you've ever done, imagine if right now every sin you've ever committed, which would probably be the majority of our lives, played on this screen in front of everyone, and everyone got to see it, and then God looked at you and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Does it make much sense to us but it makes perfect sense to him because once you have put your faith in Christ as God has enabled you to do through his grace you then get to count Christ's righteousness as your own that's what it means to be righteous in Christ we oftentimes will say I'm declared righteous in Christ but what we really mean is that we ourselves are righteous And depending on what you mean by that, that's true. But we are still still sin-cursed. We still need Christ. We can't get saved and then cut him out. He is still a part of us from that moment forward. And then this third point of application goes hand-in-hand with that one. And that is that you get to go... You get to live your life with the confidence in your salvation, with confidence in your salvation. And you get to do that because Christ has done the work for you. I said earlier that we could not achieve salvation by works because we are cursed by sin. Well, great news, Christ was not cursed by sin. He lived the perfect life. He lived the life that we were meant to, that we were unable to, and then he proceeded to die for us. The wages of sin is death. Christ didn't sin. He died for our sins. And again, in doing so, taking on that sin, the separation that was experienced, the worst thing that the most powerful, holy, good being in the universe has ever experienced will ever experience in all of eternity. And he did it for us so that we could claim the righteousness of Christ. All that is required of us is that we put our faith in him, that we trust in him. And I don't know about you guys, but that gives me like a little, you know, pep in my step walking around because no longer... Am I worried about what people say to me? You know, I'll go up to someone, and this has happened to me in the past, because again, believe it or not, I have not lived a perfect life. And so I'll go up to people, and I'll say, you know, 
man, I just, I love God so much, and I'll be talking to him. I probably won't use those exact words. I might. And then eventually it'll come down to the fact that they'll say, well, what about the things that you've done? You know, I've known you before. I've seen you do things that weren't God-like. And I'll say, yes, you have. You've seen the things that I have done, but let me tell you about what Christ has done for me. You've seen the mistakes that I've made, but let me tell you about the grace that God showed me, the grace that he is offering to you in whatever sins you have in your life right now. And that's a powerful tool to realize that people, when you are talking to them, and when you're living, not even just when you're evangelizing the people, just in your daily life, when you're struggling with the mistakes you've made in the past, the mistakes you're making right now, the mistakes you're tempted to make in the future, you remember that you have the power, A, to resist the future temptations through Christ, but B, for the things that you have done, for the things that you are doing, you can stop doing them, and you don't have to dwell on them. God's mercies are new every morning, and Christ's righteousness is your own. So I would encourage you all, if you get nothing else out of everything I've said, okay, there's two things I would encourage you to remember. One is that salvation is by grace through faith. God enables it, we accept it. The second is that we need to do good works as the fruits of our relationship with God, but that we do not have to dwell on the mistakes we have made in the past because Christ's righteousness is our own. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you now as always thankful that you have given us the opportunity to come together, spend time with one another in fellowship, and spend time in your word studying you and the work that you have done for us. God, we thank you for the sacrifice that you have made for our salvation, enabling us to choose you. God, I ask that if there are those here who haven't made that decision, that you will work in their life, you will put people in their life to help them, to, make, to bring them to spiritual awakeness. And God, we thank you for our spiritual life that you have given us. We ask you if you will always help us to have confidence in it and confidence in the work of your son in his life and in his death on the cross. We ask you all of these things in the name of your son, by the power of your spirit, God, we thank you. Amen.